you're new with us, we are going just verse by verse through the book of Daniel. Lord willing, we have two more weeks after this. Uh, Pastor Strickland and Pastor Shane have 10, 11, and 12. Uh, and then our plan starting in December is to start the Gospel of Luke. Um, and uh, when you get to the end of chapter 9 of Daniel, as the preacher, you're like, I can't wait for the Gospel of Luke uh, to get here. But it is a wonderful text in front of us. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable useful for rebuke, correction, teaching, training, and righteousness, that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we pray that your word would do that work in us now, that you would equip us for the good work of prayer, you would equip us for the work of obedience. And as a result of studying your word today, I pray that you would increase our hope and our trust in you, the God who is sovereign over human history and over our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, I'm not going to waggle on the tee box uh, this morning, uh, you know, as the golfers practice their swings before they, they hit the ball. No introduction today, no waggling. I, I've got too much to get to in uh, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, just to catch you up, after a couple of wild apocalyptic uh, chapters, uh, things are switched quite a bit in the opening of uh, the text in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, as we read about this prayer. So we've kind of gone from wild exotic food to Chick-fil-A. Uh, and we're like, oh, I know what to do with this. This is a wonderful prayer. It's easy. I like it. Uh, and Daniel really does teach us several important truths about prayer. And one of the encouraging things that this chapter shows you is that God hears your prayers and God answers your prayers, uh, which is a wonderful thing to be reminded of. And then the chapter, uh, so, and that, that uh, idea of God hearing uh, your prayers uh, is uh, found in verses 20 to 23 as the angel Gabriel comes and assures Daniel that his prayer uh, was heard. But then in verses 24 to 7, the last part of chapter 9, we read of a prophecy uh, of Daniel's 70 weeks, of which there are about 70 interpretations. And so hang on for the conclusion as I try to clear things up for you. Uh, one thing to notice is how the prophecy is tied to the prayer. It's not separate from the prayer. If you grew up in certain traditions, Daniel 9, these 70 weeks, you probably heard regularly, uh, filled with charts and graphs and all sorts of fun things. Um, if you grew up in other traditions, you may, this may be the first time you've ever heard of, of, of Daniel chapter 9, these 70 weeks, and I, I assume we probably have both crowds uh, in our midst today. Um, and so let's dive in together. I wanted you to see how Daniel here is pleading for mercy under three headings. First of all, a prayer is made. Secondly, a prayer is heard. And thirdly, a prophecy is given. Now, the idea that Daniel is praying isn't a surprise to us because we, he has been portrayed to us as a man of prayer. I would suggest that the secret to Daniel's faithfulness, and again, remember, we've tracked a guy's life from his teenage years and now to his 80s. The secret to his faithfulness is his prayer life. In chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar said, if the wise men cannot give me the, the dream and the interpretation of the thing I dreamed about, I'm going to kill all the wise men, the, the first thing Daniel did was go pray. When God showed him the dream, the interpretation, God, Daniel then went back to pray a prayer of thanks to God. In chapter 6, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, we read about his pattern of prayer how he consistently had this discipline of prayer. So he's prayed for guidance. He's, prayed for, he's given prayers of thanks. He showed us both disciplined prayer three times a day and also spontaneous prayers as crises come about in his life. He's a man, after, uh, a man of prayer day after day, year after year, decade after decade while in exile. 
And what he shows us here is a wonderful pattern for our prayer lives. And you could break it down in three parts. There's first of all a biblical meditation, verses one to, to uh, one, one and two, and then you read about this confession. I'm calling it a two-dimensional confession. I'll show you in a second. And then thirdly, he offers these petitions, these desperate petitions. So first, what is it that motivates Daniel's prayers? Well, we read that this took place during the first year of uh, Darius. This would have been around 539 BC. Uh, about the time of the end of Israel's exile. So if you're new to the Bible, Israel goes into exile for 70 years into Babylonian captivity. That 70-year period is about up now. And so Daniel says that he is perceiving in the books, that is the, the scriptures, particularly the, the prophet Jeremiah, that uh, these 70 years are about up, right? A couple of the places that he could have been reading in Jeremiah, just read one, Jeremiah 29, 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. A lot of people like to quote that verse and it's disconnected from its context. That, that wonderful verse is given in the context of I'm promising to bring you back from exile 70 years after you experience it. And so what Daniel is doing is basing his prayers on the promises of God. And I suggest to you this is a good way for us to pray. Read, pray, read, pray, read, pray. And one of the striking features I think about Daniel's prayer life is how, how consistently he's praying and how active he is in prayer even though he knows God to be sovereign. You know, sometimes there's a danger of people who embrace a high view of God's sovereignty as we do. And in fact, this book, is Daniel, is, is a book that really stresses the sovereignty of God over all things. And that's comforting. But that, that isn't an excuse for indolence. It's an incentive to action. Believing God is sovereign shouldn't make us passive. It's not making Daniel passive. Believing God to be sovereign is every reason to be active. Every reason to pray you notice in verse 3 how, how desperate his prayer is. He's fasting, a sign of desperation. He's in, he's in sackcloth. He's he, he, in expression of mourning. He's in ashes, a sign of, of ruin. And so Daniel believed that God was sovereign, and because of that, he prayed. And he's praying here the promises of God. And you may ask yourself, well, if God promised to bring them back after 70 years, why pray? 70 years has happened. And it's because God's promises are invitations to prayer. You see this all through the Bible. Elijah at Mount Carmel. God comes to Elijah and he says, go show yourself to Ahab and I'll send rain on the earth. There had been a drought because of Israel's disobedience. Elijah goes to show himself to Ahab and he wins this great battle at Mount Carmel. And immediately after that, Elijah prays for rain. And he pleads and pleads with God and then the, the rain eventually comes. And James reminds us at James 5 that that's an example of prayer. Elijah's a man like us, and we should pray like that. God said, I'll bring the rain, but that didn't mean Elijah just sat back and did nothing. He prayed for God to bring it to pass. And that sort of thing is woven throughout the biblical narrative all the way to the end of Revelation 22 when Jesus makes the glorious promise, I am coming quickly. And the response to that is, amen, come quickly. We take the promises of God and we pray them to God. This is what Daniel is doing here. And this whole prayer is really saturated with biblical language. And this is his, his motivation, his stimulus to prayer. 
Now, secondly, he moves from this biblical meditation to this two-dimensional confession. And what I mean by two-dimensional is this. Often we think about confession as being confessing the, the wrongs we have done, the sins we have committed against God. And that is certainly part of confession. And you see this in Daniel's confession. But there's another side of confession, and that is confessing true things about God. You see, in confession, we are saying what's true about God and what's true about ourselves. And you see this like two petals all the way through this this prayer. He is confessing true things about God, particularly in this prayer, the righteousness of God and the mercy of God. And he draws attention to the righteousness of God, basically saying, you are right to have sent us to exile. Everything that you have done has been righteous. That's verse 14. The Lord our God is righteous in all that he's done. We are confessing in our confession that God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. But he's also drawing attention to the mercy of God. And that's important because we need forgiveness. Praise be to God. He's not just righteous. He's also merciful. And over and over again, Daniel makes these pleas for mercy. And so you see this, again, a wonderful pattern for our prayers. We take the Bible, we read, we let that drive us to prayer. And when we pray, we confess true things about God and true things about ourselves in confession. Now, you might think as a Christian, if I have been justified by faith in Christ and I am forgiven, then why do I need to keep confessing sin? Well, there are many confessions of sin in the Bible. Psalm 51, David and Bathsheba after that event. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that we can, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which implies we need to be doing it. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. That's a daily prayer, right? So one, of the, one answer is we're told to confess our sin. But the purpose, I think, is that this is how we maintain a clean conscience before God. This is how we stay clean and stay close to God. You know, everybody these days seem to be talking about a clean conscience. You go to a restaurant, you've got that section on the menu all the time for a clean conscience. You can have a bird seed and water if you want to, and, and a spinach, and, and whoever orders that, we ask them to pray, because they're obviously holy, right? You say the blessing. But it's not based on what we eat. It's, it's based upon our repentance. You know, living in the light doesn't mean that we're sinless. And, and pursuing holiness doesn't mean that we're self-righteous. What it means is that when we're aware of our sin, we confess that sin. Because we know it offends God. And, and we want to stay clean and stay close to our God. And that's where we find joy and freedom. Like we tend to hold on to sin, not confess it to God or anyone else, because we think we're going to lose something. When in reality is you actually gain everything. That's where joy and freedom and satisfaction is, living in the light. So notice in verses 4 and 5, you see these two dimensions. As he draws attention to the character of God in verse 4, as he highlights his, his covenantal love, his steadfast love, and then he, hi- he highlights the sinfulness of he and the people. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly, rebelled, turning aside to the, your commandments and your rules. And notice this is very elementary, but that Daniel shows us here that we confess our sin first and foremost to God. I said this, he says, to the Lord my God. And that's because our offense is ultimately against God, the righteous one. We don't say, well, I failed to live up to my own standard. 
or the standard of my parents. We say, against you and you only have I sinned. That's Psalm 51. And it's a striking thing for David to say because he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against the whole country. And yet fundamentally he's right. Like Our sin is first and foremost a sin against God. And we confess this sin to God because not only is he the one we've ultimately offended, but we, and there is a place, by the way, to confess to other people, but you get the point. Daniel is approaching God because God is the one who is, who is primary, but he's also approaching God and praying to God because God is the one who alone can show mercy and forgiveness. He's the one you need when you confess sin. He's willing and able to forgive. In another confession, Nehemiah 9, a great one to read, Nehemiah says, but you are a God, I love this, ready to forgive. He's more ready to forgive than we are to ask for forgiveness, isn't he? Like he stands ready to forgive. And so Daniel is approaching God, seeking his forgiveness. Verses 6 to 8, he gets more specific. And you notice there as you allow your eyes to, to scan the page, scan the screen, he draws attention here to the prophets. And he makes a connection to the people's sin and the prophets preaching and to God's word. We have not listened, verse 6, to your servants, the prophets. Uh, later, he, he goes on to say that, that our kings and our princes and our fathers have sinned against you. So he points to the leaders, the failure of Israel's leaders, as a basic way of saying this includes all of us, from uh, the servants to the leaders, and probably is saying that the leaders are charged with greater responsibility, another theme we see in Scripture. That we have failed you, we have not uh, heeded your word, and all of us are in on this. Notice verse 5, all the way through the prayer, you see these plural pronouns. Daniel's not saying them and they, but we, us, our. This is a corporate confession as Daniel identifies himself with the people. Again, the Lord's Prayer shows us this. It's not my Father who art in heaven. It is our Father who art in heaven. Forgive us our debts, right? There is a corporateness. There is a place for personal confession, of course. But there is also a corporate confession. And Daniel, even though, think about this, he is among the godliest in Israel at this time, doesn't see himself to be somehow above corporate confession. He's not above putting on sackcloth and ashes. Because he too is a sinner. He knows that he's among those that have dishonored God and that there is a collectiveness to this action. Verses 7 to 14, we pick up on the repeated affirmation that, uh, of God's righteousness and God's merciful character, again, to the people's failure to listen to God's word, the prophets. Notice verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. When we read the Bible, it is the voice of the Lord our God. And so he's saying, we are without excuse. You told us by the mouth of your prophets, your ways, your laws, and we have not been changed by your word. And the same is true for us today. When we confess, one of the things we confess is we quite simply haven't obeyed your word. That we may be charmed by the Bible, but we haven't been changed by the Bible. We've heard the Bible, but we've not listened and obeyed the Bible. And so there is a confession here 
Based upon the word of God, God has come in his righteousness, spoken his word, they have disobeyed. And Daniel here is showing us how you bear real responsibility for your sin. And how, how I think it's helpful to use biblical language when we confess our sin. Like, why take responsibility for a confession of sin? Is because you sinned, <laughs> right? Who's responsible for my sin? I am. Daniel here is including himself. Certainly circumstances impact us. We live in a fallen world. People can do bad things to us, but we cannot blame shift and practice confession. We cannot practice denial and practice confession or look for some other excuse. Rather, we should use these kinds of language. Notice all the words here. Verse 5, sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away. Those are not very politically correct terms, are they? Not listened, disloyalty, verse 7, public shame, sinned, verse 8, rebelled, verse 9, not obeyed, verse 10, broken your law, turned away, refusing to obey, sinned, verse 11, iniquities, verse 13, not obeyed, verse 14, sinned, acted wickedly. That's, that's a good vocabulary for confession. It's not, well, we had an error in judgment, right? I got frustrated. My decision proved to be faulty. Have you ever heard these lame confessions from, from leaders? Or, this is my favorite one, I just lost my temper. Like it's not my fault. It just ran away. I don't know what happened to it. It just, it left me. Uh, or, she pushes my buttons. Again, there's this sense of trying to blame shift. We should listen to the theologian Chris Stapleton. I got nobody to blame but me when it comes to confession. And so that's Daniel here showing us again a wonderful pattern, I think, of taking the Bible, praying the promises of God, entering into a time of confession of sin. That confession of sin involves addressing God, confessing who he is and what we've done, taking responsibility, not blame shifting, using real biblical language to do that, and believing he's merciful, that he hears our prayers. And from that point, then he pivots to offer these desperate petitions and the petitions basically involve this. Restore your people to the land. Restore Jerusalem. Restore the temple. Please act. And so he makes the prayer this way. Verse 15 is transitional. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought out your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because uh, for our sins and for the iniquities of the fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention. Oh Lord, act. Do not delay for your own sake. Notice a few things about these petitions here. Daniel realizes the basis for his pleas isn't the people's faithfulness. His pleas do not rest on the people's, you know, commitment to a fresh start. The basis for his pleas is on the mercy of God. That God hears and that God forgives 
and that God will act and God will restore Jerusalem and he will do it twice, he prays, for your own sake. For your own glory, God, forgive us. For your own glory, restore the city, restore the temple. And this, my friends, is how we make our pleas today as well. We need the mercy of God. We don't become, come before him because, he's right, because we're righteous, but because he's merciful. <laughs> Have you ever wandered into a teenager's room left to wonder, how in the world can you accumulate so much stuff and it be everywhere? Or walked into a single guy's apartment and you say, you say how in the world could you accumulate so many dishes, uh, right? But have you ever paused to think about the accumulation of your own sins over time? How do you deal with all of that? Our only hope is the mercy of God. And we're thankful today, as old Sibs used to say, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. As you think on the accumulation of all of that, we say with the psalmist, if you kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We make our pleas on the basis of the mercy of God. And if you're not a Christian, this is how you start the Christian life. Jesus gave this wonderful little parable when he said two guys went to pray. One was a religious, self-righteous guy, and he says, oh, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. But the other one couldn't even lift his head to the heavens, and he simply prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy went down to his house justified. That's how we, be we begin. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is how we continue in the Christian life. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Be gracious to us. This is the prayer by Daniel, and it's a beautiful prayer. Now we move from this prayer given to this prayer heard. Verses 20 to 23, enter the angel. Notice, while I was speaking and praying. It's not that Daniel's, he's not even finished praying yet. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that is Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, remember we looked at him a few weeks ago, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So this little text here is encouraging in a number of ways, but one of which is the obvious. God hears the prayers of his people. While Daniel is praying, it seems that his prayer is interrupted by this holy visitor. Gabriel, who comes, as Daniel says, at the time of the evening sacrifice to give him some, some insight. Now, if uh, we, we start the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting, at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Gabriel is there. And we assume that's the same Gabriel. And what does he do there? Well, Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, is praying, and Gabriel comes and says, your prayer has been heard. <laughs> And here he's appearing to Daniel, basically saying the same thing. Your prayer has been heard. Our prayers get heaven's attention. Like we're not just whistling in the wind. God really does hear our prayers. This is one of the ways God is different from idols. Recall how the psalmist would say in various places, the idols have no ears, they can't hear. They have no eyes, they can't see. They have no mouth, they can't, they can't talk. But our God speaks. Our God sees. Our God hears. You know? Back in the day, New Edition had this song, Mr. Telephone Man. There's something wrong with my line. When I dial my baby's number, I get a click every time. 
Like, like she, she's not there. We don't have that problem when it comes to God. You have that problem if you're worshiping an idol, if you're praying to a God that doesn't exist. But we're not. We pray to a God who hears us, right? Jesus taught us about this in, a, in another parable in Luke 11 where he says, if you had a, a crisis in the middle of the night, even a good friend might not help you. They may not hear you. Today we kind of experience this, I think, with, with phone calls. You, know, you get a phone call, like, oh, it's my friend John. Decline. <laughs> right? <laughs> but we never get a decline from God. He, in that parable, is the Father. He's different. He hears. He responds. Daniel's prayer went up, and God's word immediately went running down. About the time, he says, of the evening offering. And that's a striking phrase, because there had been no evening sacrifices in the temple since it was destroyed in 586. What does this mean? It means Daniel still has it on his mind. In the words of one author, he's on Jerusalem time. And we too live in reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. We live in reference to that ultimate sacrifice. It's always on our minds. But another way this little text is encouraging, not only does God hear the prayers of his people, but God loves his people. Notice 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, and why does he get this vision from, from Gabriel? For you are greatly loved. Isn't that awesome? You know why your prayer was heard, Daniel? You're greatly loved. That's something we'll see again in chapter 10. A statement affirming God's love for Daniel. And you too, saint, are greatly loved. You're greatly loved. How do we know this? Well, one of the ways we know this is that we are in Jesus Christ, the beloved one. We are in the beloved, and God loves us. We are in him. We are his children. He has loved us with the love before the foundation of the world, and the saints are precious in his eyes, and therefore his prayers are precious to him. He says, Daniel, you are greatly loved. So Gabriel brings him this word of comfort, and now he's going to tell Daniel something about Daniel's prayers. Remember now, Daniel was praying for the end of the exile, the return of Jeru to, to Jerusalem, and the restoration of the temple. And now we go to this prophecy given. It's in that context that we enter this section on the 70 weeks, and I'll try to be clearer than I was at the 9 o'clock service. <laughs> this is one of the most disputed texts in the Bible. That's not an exaggeration. And that's why I love what friend and pastor Alistair Begg said. He said, quote, in what follows, regarding this text, in what follows, I reserve the right to change my mind later this evening. <laughs> and as often as necessary for the rest of my life until I finally settle the matter. What I'm about to now unfold for you will annoy some, disappoint others, confuse many, and perhaps encourage a few. <laughs> Which the latter part's about every week that I preach, right? But, but especially on this text here. Now, and what this basically means is there, this is not a point of, should never be a point of division when you come to very difficult to interpret texts, right? Um, good people who love Jesus interpret this text differently. I appreciate them and their perspective. I just don't share it. Um, and I think one of the things that, that's happened historically regarding these 70 weeks is people have built entire what's called eschatology, end times view, around Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 7. Wherever you come on the interpretation, I would just caution against building a whole theology 
based on a text that's really hard to interpret and is, is quite obscure. As Begg often says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so in our preaching, we try to major on the plain things, making that the main things. What I want to do is just give you the big idea and then show you uh, how I read this text, okay? And overall, this is very encouraging. Remember, it's tied to Daniel's prayer for the restoration of these things. And this is the big idea. God wanted Daniel to know that his plan for salvation was far grander than bringing the people back to the land and restoring the temple, right? Daniel's just praying, hey, get us home from Babylon. Restore the city. He sends Gabriel to say, uh, there's more that's going to happen than that. My plan of salvation centers on Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. You've been praying for forgiveness? Let me show you how forgiveness is going to come in its fullness. You, you're praying for restoration? Let me show you how it's going to unfold. So he wants Daniel to expand his horizons by showing him that, well, you, I am going to hear your prayer and and. People are going to go back into Jerusalem. The temple will be restored, albeit not to the same glory as Solomon. But that's not the end. More is going to happen as years go on. Now, one difficult part is this term weeks. And this is actually the one part where most people agree that these, and you see a footnote if you have an ESV, instead of 70 weeks, it says 77s, meaning years. So we're talking here 490 years. And some people take the numbers in this text as uh, exact literal numbers and meaning that you 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 have a point when the clock starts and then a point when it stops with the coming of Christ or some event related to the coming of Christ and you can get in the ballpark with the math if you depending on where you start the clock and where you stop it others read this more in keeping I think with the literary genre that this is symbolic uh, numbers it, it refers to more time or God's own time um, numbers are often used in this way. Uh, you know, when Jesus says, forgive your brother 70 times seven, we're not supposed to just add them up, right? You've exceeded my limit, brother. Uh, you're on 491 and I'm no longer going to forgive you. But it simply means this kind of indefinite period of time. I think what Gabriel's basically saying here to Daniel is this, you've been in exile for 70 years, but something else is going to happen in 70 times seven. There's going to be something unfold in history. Certain events in redemptive history will happen until perfect atonement is made. So you basically got, I think, two main schools of thought here on verses 24 to 27. Let me give you the, the two views and then read the text for us. Some read these events that follow being about a lot of things. Rebuilding of the temple, that is, they go back after captivity, the first coming of Christ, his atoning work, and then the destruction of the temple. Don't let that confuse you. They go back, rebuild the temple. Christ comes, dies, rises. A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed the temple, right? And then they, this particular view adds many other features referring to the second coming of Christ. And what they do is they, they see what's called a gap in between verses 26 and 7. And inside that gap... God no longer deals with the church. He's dealing with Israel. The Antichrist comes. You have tribulation and so on until it all, it all ends. Now, that's one particular way of reading. I think that's an unwarranted reading myself. Again, I know a lot of men who share this view, and I like them, but don't share their perspective. 
other, this other view is that this refers to multiple events, but not events related to the second coming. So you basically have these, these events that I'm about to read. You have the people go back into the land, restore the city, rebuild the, the Jerusalem, and then Jesus comes eventually in due time, makes perfect atonement for sin, but then that same temple that Daniel wanted restored is destroyed in AD 70. And what God is basically saying to Daniel is, you haven't seen nothing yet. My plan of salvation is far greater. The same temple that you want restored will be destroyed again. So don't put your hope in the temple. Put your hope in the one to whom the temple points, Jesus himself. He is the one who will make an end of all sin, right? And so verse 24, I think, is the summary of that, that, that those events in the life of Jesus. Seventy weeks are decreed by your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. I see this again as referring to the whole, the whole time period, a statement about Jesus where he finishes the transgression, putting an end to sin. Writer of Hebrews says this, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His death atones for our iniquity. He brings in, as the writer says here, everlasting righteousness. His kingdom is inaugurated. We have this already not yet salvation. And it is this work that in the end will vindicate the vision and the prophet. Jesus' work will vindicate what the prophets foretold all the years prior to. And it is his blood that anoints the most holy place, securing redemption for his people. I think that's verse 24. Now, verse 25 covers... 69 sevens. It's, it says seven sevens and then 62 sevens. Let's read it together, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the beginning, the, the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then the ESV adds a new sentence, but it actually can be, uh, instead of then it can be and, depending on how you translate that particular word. The, the, in other words, the seven and the 62 are tied together. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. It's talking about the same temple with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And so the point, I think, in verse 25, this refers to the rebuilding of the temple. The people go back into Jerusalem, rebuild the temple until the coming of Christ is these 69 sevens. That is a long period of time leading up to the coming of Jesus. You have the decree of Cyrus to go rebuild the temple, and then life goes on until the next big thing in redemptive history, namely the coming of Jesus, right? The decree of Cyrus happened around 538 BC, and one of the things you see is how God's saving work is set in history. Something happened in history. Real people went back to Jerusalem. They really built this temple. Life went on. I notice how it says, in a troubled time. The temple was never in its glory, and even during Jesus's lifetime, they're ruled by Rome. It's a troubled time. And so I think that's what verse 25 is saying. Now, verse 26 and 7, here's where the, the, most of the disagreement happens in this text, I think refers to the same events. Okay? Verse 26 describes in indefinite terms the crucifixion, that is the cutting off of the anointed one, and then the destruction of the temple in AD 70. We haven't talked about AD 70, but after Jesus rose from the dead, Titus and Rome came in and destroyed this temple. This was a significant event that I think Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, 15, and 16. And then I think verse 27 describes the same events, but in more specific detail. This is what, 
we, we refer to as prophetic parallelism, right? Where verse 27 repeats verse 26. So it's not A, B, C, D, it's A, B, A, B. You have an A, B in verse 26, notice it, after the 60 weeks, 62 weeks rather, that is the 62 plus the seven, so that we're heading toward the last aspect here. An anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing, which I take to be Christ being cut off from the land of the living. This speaks of his violent death. And then, not long after that crucifixion is the destruction of the city in AD 70, which I think the writer says here, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there should be war. Desolations are decreed. Now I think verse 27, he's talking about the same time period here, the same final week, not something in the distant future, indicated by and. A continuing thought, but a parallel thought. He shall make a strong covenant, that is Christ making a covenant with his own blood, with many for a week, and for a half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. That he will be the final sacrifice, the final offering, dying for his people, and then the second half of the verse referring again to eighty seventy and the destruction of the city. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. The wing of abominations is probably a reference to idolatry, that he will desecrate the temple like Antiochus did. Until, just like Antiochus, he won't do this forever. Until the desolator is then destroyed. So he's telling Daniel, let's put it in broader context now. Daniel's praying, we want to go back to Jerusalem, get out of Babylon Restore the city, restore the temple. Gabriel comes, your prayer's been heard. But this same temple you want destroyed or want restored will eventually be destroyed again. Don't put your hope in a temple, Daniel. Put your hope in the one to whom the temple points, Jesus Christ. Within four decades after Jesus' crucifixion, on the same soil where that temple sat, it would be destroyed and defiled by pagans. But we have one greater than the temple today, church. We have one who has made an end of sacrifices. You want forgiveness of sins? You look no further than Jesus Christ. This is what heaven was so anxious to communicate to Daniel. Daniel has seen the Son of Man seated at the Father's right hand. And now Daniel knows something of the perfect sacrifice for sin in Jesus Christ. This was probably the reason why this time Daniel isn't lying sick and miserable after this vision. This one brings great comfort. God's ultimate purpose was not to dwell in a temple made by hands. Recall how Daniel prayed for God's face to shine upon the sanctuary. Paul tells us that the glory of God has shown in the face of Jesus Christ, the true temple. You want to meet God? You meet God in Jesus Christ. You want forgiveness of sins? You find it in Jesus Christ. This is why we don't cling to the types and shadows. We cling to the substance himself. And Daniel, perhaps this is why Daniel received this message during the evening sacrifice. Another sacrifice would come. A better sacrifice would come. The anointed one, Jesus Christ. And he will come again, church, to which we pray, amen. Come quickly. We pray to a righteous God. We pray to a merciful God. We pray to a sovereign God, and we can pray because Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. He has given us access to God. And we have this privilege of prayer because we, like Daniel, 
are greatly loved. <laughs> We're greatly loved. Lest we ever doubt that, just look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for his word. Father, we pray that you would write these truths on our hearts, that we would be a people quick to confess sin and also a people who know that you are a God ready to forgive sin and that you have done the unthinkable when it comes to the forgiveness of sins in sending forth Jesus Christ to be our substitute, the one who now gives us access to you by the power of the Spirit to commune with you. And we thank you for your word today. And we pray that as a result of our study in your word, you would make us a faithful people, a prayerful people, and a grateful people. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.